Amen. I, I do love our worship service and the presence of the Lord that we can sense in it. I love how we will begin with announcements and we will be thinking of the temporal and physical needs of our flock and our congregation. And then, as we have a call to worship, we begin to ascend. And then as we sing the hymns of praise and adoration, we begin to go even higher. And then as we pray, we go higher still. And then, as we sing the psalms, uh, we begin to approach the heavenlies. And I love how the Lord takes us vertical. And I pray that we don't go down until He is done meeting with us. And I pray that in the preaching of the Word of God, we would reach the pinnacle of that worship. I, I truly believe that the Lord's Day worship service is the closest that any of us will ever get to heaven on earth. <laughs> uh, so I would ask you to turn with me once more to Psalm 34, the 34th Psalm. Um, those of you who have been with us for a while know that we've been in an exposition of 1 Corinthians, but given the providence in our congregation over this past week with the uh, unexpected death of Kyle's mother, um, by the way, for those of you that don't know, Kyle is 18. And so for him to lose his mother, it's definitely something that is untimely and out of season. And I know that uh, other needs, similar needs, family strife, and other hardships are being faced and experienced by several of those of you here this evening. And the Lord led me to depart from 1 Corinthians for a Sunday and to dive into the text of the 34th Psalm. I'll begin reading at verse 15. We read the entirety of this psalm earlier, but our text will be from verse 15 to the end of the chapter. Psalm 34, verse 15, these are the words of God. The eyes of the Lord are upon the righteous, and His ears are open unto their cry. The face of the Lord is against them that do evil, to cut off the remembrance of them from the earth. The righteous cry, and the Lord heareth, and delivereth them out of all their troubles. The Lord is nigh unto them that are of a broken heart, and saveth such as be of a contrite spirit. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivereth him out of them all. He keepeth all his bones, not one of them is broken. Evil shall slay the wicked, and they that hate the righteous shall be desolate. The Lord redeemeth the soul of his servants, and none of them that trust in him shall be desolate. Pain, heartache, sadness, frustration, mourning, affliction, and even depression are realities for those of us who live in a fallen world. Even for those of you who are Christians, life can often deal some very heavy blows. Broken relationships, abandonment, financial crisis, tensions in your family, or even as we have experienced this week, the loss of a loved one can often cause grief and sorrow and agony. And one of the greatest lies of the adversary is to tell you in those times of pain that the hurt that you are experiencing, you are going through it all alone. How many of you have felt this way? Perhaps you've 
said things like, no one understands what I'm going through. No one has experienced what I am experiencing. No one can relate to me. I am all alone in this hard time. Well, dear friend, when you turn to the Word of God, you find out what a dastardly lie that is. In the Bible, we find that not only have the people of God experienced what you are experiencing, but they have felt what you are feeling and they have gone through what you are going through for countless generations. Yet they were upheld and sustained. May I even say they were perseverant. And some of the clearest pictures of this truth are found among the Psalms. The Psalms resonate with us because they identify with the whole gambit of human emotions. In the Psalms we find joy and sadness. We find worship and we find apostasy. We find happiness, we find depression. We find it all in the Psalms. And they also give us a first person account of where the saints have been what the saints have experienced, and how they made it through to the other side. This provides us with a hope that leads us out of the pit that we are in into a place of worship, joy, and thankfulness. And Before we can dive right into the text, we do need to do a bit of groundwork. I want to give you the context of this psalm. The context of this psalm is 1 Samuel chapter 21. That is the historical setting. Just to give you a brief summary of that chapter, you'll know that King Saul was relentlessly pursuing David and he was seeking to take his life. And as David fled, he reached these new lows in his spiritual life. And David would often get so broken and so depressed that from the natural man's vantage point, we just didn't see how David was going to make it through. And 1 Samuel 21 is one of those points in David's life. As David fled, he he reaches the city of Gath, and he goes to Gath for refuge from Saul. Now, the Bible scholars in the room tonight would be able to tell you why that is uh, an exemplification of David's low depression. What is the city of Gath? Is that not the hometown of Goliath? The, the giant whom David killed? Imagine being in such dire straits to save your own life that you flee to the city in which you killed the hometown hero. I mean, that's out of, you're out of options when you get to that point. And David knew that going to Gath could quite possibly get him killed, but he had no other option because if he didn't go to Gath, Saul would catch up to him and Saul would kill him. So he had to come up with some way to get to Gath and to, to be accepted. And what does David do? David fakes his own insanity. He sits at the gate of the city and he allows drool to run out of his mouth and down his beard. And the people thought, you know, what is this madman doing coming into our city? They did not realize that it was... David in his right mind. That's why if you look at the superscription, that uh, in your Bible it might be a small print or it might be the same size print, but it's that little title at the beginning of the psalm. That's why it says that this is a psalm when David changed his behavior or perhaps you're, you might have a, a version of the Bible that says when he feigned madness, when he faked insanity or something to that effect. Same thing. That was the context of this psalm. David 
literally pretended to be a crazy person in order to be allowed into the city for refuge. So uh, the question I ask you to those who still doubt that anyone can identify with your trials and your tribulation, can you identify with David? I doubt that any of us can say that we've spent 13 years running for our life. I mean, God already told us that we were going to be the king. And, and now it's been 13 years since we got that news. And we've spent the last decade and three years running for our life. And we have to fake our own insanity just to keep from being killed. Let me assure you, friend, the Bible understands your pain. God identifies with your suffering. Not only is suffering a reality in the Christian life, suffering is expected and normal in the Christian life. Because this David, who describes himself, I believe in verse, verse 6, this poor man cried. This poor man that's crying is also a man after God's own heart. And God has preserved his people in tribulation in days gone by, and he will do the same for you. That is the context of this psalm. And we look to verse 15, and I, when we look at this text, it's, it's kind of a back and forth, as is common in Hebrew poetry. It's parallel. You'll find one idea. It's called contrasting parallelism. You'll have one idea, and then that will be um, responded to with another idea that is opposite to it. And that's kind of how this text goes from verse 15 down to verse 22. And that's kind of how I've outlined this text. And the first thing I want us to see is the character of the righteous. The character of the righteous. The Bible says in verse 15, the eyes of the Lord are upon the righteous. And uh, this psalm, just in these seven verses, refers to the righteous four times directly and a number of times through pronouns as well. So if we're going to understand this psalm, we need to understand who the righteous is. Before we can jump into an exposition of the text, we need to make a careful identification of its main character. Why is that? Well, because an immeasurable amount of confusion about the promises of God in Scripture has arisen from simple misunderstandings of when and to whom God made His promises. This can be easily seen by the number of people that think Philippians 4.13, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, has to do with their ability to shoot a basketball from the three-point line. We need to understand when we see the promises of God, we need to understand the scope and recipient of those promises. It's kind of like the guy that uh, you know, fired, this, fired the security system, cut out the alarm, didn't lock his doors, because the Bible said no weapon formed against him shall prosper. <laughs> well, these are promises. And they're still true and they're still valid, but they're valid in the way that God gave them. So the promises of this psalm are to the righteous. That is what I'm saying to you. So we need to understand who the righteous are. Who is this group, the righteous? And we must emphasize this because if we overlook it, you may falsely believe that these promises apply to you when in reality they don't. You must be honest with this text, and you must admit that if you are not in this group called the righteous, these are not your promises. So who then are the righteous, and are you a part of them? Let's answer these two questions. 
I'll answer the first one for you, but only you can answer the second one. It's a very common designation all throughout the Psalms. You'll see that. The righteous, the righteous. And it refers to a group of people that are morally right, just, virtuous, and holy. Well, now we've really opened a can of worms because the Bible also tells us in places such as Romans 3 that all have sinned and that there is not a single good person upon the earth. So how can anyone be a part of this group called the righteous? Only on the merits of another. There is only one man in the history of mankind. And there will ever only be one man in the history of mankind who was truly righteous in and of himself. We can say that he is the righteous one. And anyone else who is called righteous is only righteous because they are identified with this one man. I'm speaking, of course, of the Lord Jesus Christ. This group called the righteous are those who have been accredited with the righteousness of Christ through faith. In theology, we call this the doctrine of imputed righteousness. Are you saved by good works? Absolutely, but not your own good works. Are you saved by righteousness? Absolutely, but not your own righteousness. Your righteousnesses are as filthy rags. You're saved by the righteousness of Christ. Your salvation, your justification, your conversion is not on the, bare, on the basis or merits of anything you have done. It is on the merits of Christ. And faith is the apparatus which God gives you to receive that righteousness. That is how God saves sinners. And we must remember that as we walk through these verses that these promises are exclusively given to those in Christ. And you might say, well, I'm being kind of harsh for uh, making such a distinction. But I really think that is the most loving thing to do. I fear that there are a lot of people who do not truly know Jesus Christ, who do not live for His honor and His glory, who have no evidence to believe that they are saved, to believe that they are Christians, to believe that they will stand approved before God on the last day, yet they come to the Bible and they cherry pick it when they need something from God and they read a text like this, And they say, see here, God hears me, God's going to help me, God's going to deliver me. And we must be honest with them because we love them that if they are not in Christ, they cannot make those claims. Because they are in Christ, not because of any worth of their own, the righteous have become the objects of God's special providence and protection. And if this is you, may the word of God comfort you as you see all that God does for his people. If you can say in your heart of hearts right now that you are in this group called the righteous, then the rest of this text will be just a glorious explosion of joy and worship for you. But if this is not you, may the word of God convict you of the peril that awaits and may you flee to Christ, the only place of refuge. That is the character of the righteous. The second thing I want you to see, though, is the countenance of God. The countenance of God. We see that in verses 15 and 16. The eyes of the Lord are upon the righteous, and His ears are open unto their cry. God is personally concerned with the affairs of His people. This is a a literary device 
which we would call anthropomorphism. It is when God communicates himself to us as if he was a man, as if he was a human. We know that Jesus Christ is truly God and truly man, but God the Father is immaterial. He is a spirit, and they who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. He has no eyes, he has no ears. But he communicates himself in this way so that we are able to understand him. And he says, my eyes are upon you, and my ears are open to your cry. Not only does he see, he also listens. He is doubly observant. You might say, well, God is omniscient. God is all-knowing. Of course he sees and of course he hears. Well, yes, he does. But the seeing and hearing of verse 15 is not just that of knowledge. God is not just saying, I know everything. God is saying, I care about everything. This is a seeing and a hearing of intimate compassion. It is true that God sees and hears all things, but there is a unique manner in which he sees and hears his people in which he does not see and hear everything else. I'll give you an illustration. A man going about his day, going to work, going to the store, going wherever a man goes, (laughs) he will see and he will hear lots of people and lots of things. But when he walks through When he walks through his door and his children run down the hall and they cry out for their father, it's as if that's the first thing he's seen all day. It's as if that's the first thing he's heard all day. Everything else that he's seen and he's heard, yeah, he has knowledge of it. But it's so minuscule and insignificant compared to the sound of his own children. How much more does our Heavenly Father see and hear us? And we know from this verse that because God uniquely considers the righteous, well, then he knows who the righteous are. Men can creep in. Women can creep in unawares. And we have no way of knowing outwardly that they are not truly one of us. But it's not so in the eyes of God. He knows who his people are. He knows where his people are. He knows what his people are feeling. He knows what they're going through who. Because he is the God who sees and hears. The God with whom we have to do is the God who sees and hears. This is a great comfort. Because it tells us that when no one else sees, when no one else understands, when even other Christians are turning their backs on you, God sees, God knows, God listens. When the world is accounting you as a fool, God sees your inner desire to live for him. But friend, this is also quite terrifying. Because you may have everyone else fooled. I may may think that I'm preaching to a room full of righteous saints. You may even be baptized. You may even be a member of a church. But if you're not truly part of this group called the righteous God knows I believe if you search your heart of hearts you know whether you are sincerely trusting in Christ or not 
That's the countenance of God towards His people. And then here's that parallelism we talked about in verse 16. We see the countenance of God towards those who are not His. The face of the Lord is against them that do evil. To cut off the remembrance of them from the earth. This is in great contrast with the promise in verse 15. The face of the Lord is synonymous with the eyes and the ears of the previous verse. And sometimes in the Bible, God is said to turn His face away from those who reject Him. He turns His face away from Israel when they cease from following after Him. But here, this is something more intense. He is actively setting His face against this group. And this is not just because those in verse 16 have rejected Him, but it is because they are actively doing evil. He is against them that do evil. Doing evil refers more to just a slip up or a backsliding. This is not talking about the believer who stumbles. This is talking about the one who lives in a lifestyle that is characterized by doing evil. And the Lord is against such a person. They have set themselves in opposition to God. Therefore, God looks upon them not as beloved children, but as despised enemies. And by the way, those are the only two ways in which God looks upon anyone. He either sees you as a beloved child, and He has no wrath for you, He has no anger for you, because Jesus Christ bore that wrath and that anger, or He sees you as an enemy to him and his Christ. Beloved, how does God see you? What is God's countenance toward you? There's no middle ground with God. You are one or the other in his eyes, and oh, how great is his love, and oh, how fierce is his wrath. Note the difference between the way God deals with his people and the way God deals with his enemy. The Bible says that Christians shall inherit the earth says that we will live and reign with Christ upon the earth. We will be eternally with Him. But in verse 16, what a somber phrase at the end of that verse. He will cut off the remembrance of them from the earth. In eternity, the evil will not so much as be a memory to us. That's impossible for us to fully understand. But but think about this, the, the communion, if I could try to explain it to you, the communion that you will have with God forever as a Christian, as a believer, as a glorified saint on that last day, the communion that you will have with God, the worship that you will experience will be so grand and so glorious that the most evil things that have ever taken place upon the earth in all of human history will not so much as be a memory. I think that's part of God wiping away every tear. And that's not a reality for us now. There are atrocious things that not only do we remember, but I personally think we should remember them. Just last Saturday, we remembered as a nation a very atrocious act that took place on American soil, 9-11. And I want to say this carefully 
Because I'm not saying that we shouldn't keep remembering it. We should, but there's coming a day in eternity, friend, when, when that won't be a memory. And God will. The reason why it doesn't need to be a memory is because God will vindicate it. God will right those wrongs. That hasn't taken place yet. Therefore, we remember. The martyrs in heaven cry to God, How long? How long? And there's coming a day when those wrongs will be righted. Those evil acts won't so much as even be a memory. The hardships that you experience, the pain that you go through, though it's fresh and heavy on our minds, even with what we experienced last Wednesday with our dear brother, there's coming a day when we will be in the splendors of heaven, and these heartaches will not so much as be a memory. That's the countenance of God. For those of you who are in Christ, you will experience the trials of this life. See, both groups, both the righteous and both the evil, they both experience trials. They both experience hardship. But the Christian has a loving God who sustains him by His grace. But those outside of Christ, not only must they endure the hardships of life, but they must also deal with the fact that all the while they are the enemy of God. And that's not popular preaching. That's not a popular message. In a God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life society. But that's what the Bible says. So what is God's countenance towards you? How does God, right now, how does God look upon you? God is in heaven and He is peering down into this worship service and He sees all of us who are assembled here and He sees us collectively and He sees us individually and when He looks individually at you, how does He see you? Does He say, that is my child worshiping me in the corporate worship service of Christ fellowship? Or does He say, there is my church and they are worshiping me but there is one sitting on that pew who is not of me. He is an enemy and no one knows it, but I know it. Is God saying that about you? Let's come to grips with these serious things in the Word of God. Thirdly, I want you to see, though, the condition of the righteous. The condition of the righteous. In verse 17, down through verse 19, there are four phrases that describe the condition of the righteous. The righteous are said to be troubled, they are said to be broken-hearted. They are said to be contrite. And they are said to be afflicted. Let us consider these four adjectives. The first, they are said to be troubled. I, I don't think I have to tell you that Christians experience troubles. The troubles are an evident reality in the life of a believer. It has even been said by one, if you're a Christian... You are either going into trouble, coming out of trouble, or being prepared to go into trouble. In fact, troubles have even been promised to us by our Lord Jesus Himself. He says in John 16.33, In the world ye shall have tribulation. But he also says in that same verse, But be of good cheer, I have overcome the world. So as believers, we all have troubles in this world. Yes, but we must never forget that we serve a God who overcomes the world and who is sovereign even over our troubles. Well. So what must we do in the midst of troubles? Verse 17. 
What is your part? You, you, you say, Pastor, I am troubled. What, what must I do? The righteous cry. Comma. Notice, that is, your, that is your part. The righteous cry. That's all they do. And then it picks up with what the Lord does. Your part is simply to realize your need and cry. Realize your need and cry. Some of you have not yet realized that the gospel is not a pull-yourself-up-by-the-bootstraps message. And you're in denial about these troubles that you experience. And you think, I'm all right. I'm all right. I can do it. I can manage. I can handle. I can pull myself through. And what you need to do is quit that silliness and cry. And others of you realize the trouble that you're in and you're telling everyone about it, but not yet God. Prayer is your first resource, not your last resort. Cry to God. That is your part. Present your troubles to Him, confessing that He has already won the victory over them. That is your part. Here's God's part. The righteous cry, and the Lord heareth and delivereth them out of all their troubles. Now, I don't know about you, but I think that's a pretty good deal. You mean to tell me that if I'm in Christ... What I must do is cry to God and say, Lord, I'm troubled here in my troubles, and then I just rest and trust that He's going to hear that cry and deliver me out of my troubles? It's called grace for a reason. And this is the response that God guarantees to the cries of His troubled children. First, He guarantees He's going to hear us, but secondly, He guarantees that not only will He hear, He will answer and He will deliver. Troubles in the life of a Christian become blessings as they remind us of our dependence upon God and they drive us to our knees in prayer. Sometimes that delivery might not come when you are expecting it, how you are expecting it, but it will come. Sometimes it might not even come in this life, but it will come. It will come. Sometimes God does not remove the trouble. Sometimes it seems like the trouble gets worse. Maybe some of you will identify with this. But yet, even though the trouble seems to be raging, God is doing something within you so that you're able to bear up under those troubles. That's the deliverance of God. If I can be vulnerable, I find myself in that situation quite often. Things will trouble me, and when I look at them objectively... I I don't know why they trouble me because I know I've been through worse circumstances in the past and was not nearly as troubled, but there's something about whatever I'm going through at that time and it's bothering me and it's vexing me and it's worrying me. And I don't need necessarily this thing to let up. I need God to minister to my heart so that I can get my head back on my shoulders and make it through that situation and trouble. Perhaps someone can identify with that. But God's people are troubled. The righteous are troubled, but they're also broken-hearted. Look at verse 18. This is one of the most beautiful promises in the Word of God. The Lord is nigh unto them that are of a broken heart. 
Oftentimes, trials and tribulations can take a devastating emotional toil. As troubles are added to troubles, as difficulties pile on top of one another, as depression begins to set in, any glimmer of hope fades away and we become broken hearted. Yet it is at that time when we seem to be at our lowest that God is pleased to draw most near. The Lord is nigh unto them that are of a broken heart. Our high and lofty God. See, that's what's so beautiful about Christianity. In a religion like Islam, for instance, they worship who they believe to be a supreme being. But they believe that he is completely separate from creation. That he's not even able to be known. And he has no desire, no desire to know his people. That's why the word Muslim simply means one who submits. That's all that religion is. Whereas we have a God that desires to be near his people. Our high and lofty God that dwells in a dimension that we cannot fathom condescends to be near those who are of low estate. God will not desert his people in distress. He attends unto their heartache. See, oftentimes it's not pleasant for us to be around someone who is sad and gloomy. Have you ever tried to cheer up someone who is in the pits? And after a little while of talking to them, you find yourself just as bummed out as they are. My mother used to say, misery loves company. Spend, someone, spend some time with someone who truly has a broken heart and you will find yourself becoming sad with them. We like, that's why we like to be around people who are cheery and upbeat. But God delights in seeking out the brokenhearted and providing them with a special anointing of His presence. He takes pleasure in being near the forlorn and beaten down because He is glorified by the outpourings of His grace and the mercy of to those who are most in desperate need of them. It's the heart of our God. And I think we can learn something from that. We can learn that when we do have that brother or that sister that is brokenhearted, and we know that being near them could cause us to become just like them, so we try to come up with excuses as to why we can't deal with them. I think we need to look to what our God does. The Bible says, God comforts us so that we can comfort others with the comfort wherewith we have been comforted. Very Pauline phrase. (laughs) We need to remember that God knows the state and the frame of his people. And he does not recline from them when he sees them that way. He's not recluse. He does not say, oh, he's having a bad day. I'm going to steer away from him. No, God sees his people in this condition of brokenheartedness and he draws near. And when you are brokenhearted, God wants you to come to Him and He wants to come to you. And also, the righteous are contrite. 
verse 18, he saveth such as be of a contrite spirit. This word literally means someone who is crushed in spirit. That's a good rendering of that phrase. He crushed in spirit. Their hopes are shattered. Their aspirations are destroyed. Their life is smashed into a million irreparable pieces. And these are the people with whom God draws near and saves. Someone who has been absolutely pulverized by the circumstances of his or her life because the human spirit can only take so much. And some of you may be in this place or near this place or we all know someone who is close to this place. Let me say to you that God's people may be forlorn but they are never forsaken because God stands ready to save, revive, and rejuvenate those who are of a contrite spirit. When you are beaten down, the salvation of God is most near. And so do not let brokenness and contrition discourage you, but let them drive you to the salvation that God has promised for His people. And lastly, the righteous are afflicted. Many, verse 19, are the afflictions of the righteous. God's people face a plurality of afflictions, physical ailments, spiritual battles, personal strife, persecution. The list goes on and on. And afflictions are even guaranteed to those who live in a fallen world, especially to those who have been saved out of that fallen world and who are now living with different operating orders in that same fallen world. But notice again that this condition does not come without a blessed promise. I love what this verse says. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivereth him out of them all. Out of them all. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, yet greater still is the deliverance of God. God's mercies are more numerous than your troubles. God's ability to save is mightier than the world's ability to condemn. You might wonder, well, how can this be true? After all, I'm still experiencing affliction in my life. How can I rest in this promise that God will deliver me from all of my afflictions? Well, it's true because even though you are still being afflicted, God is still delivering. He has delivered you. He is currently delivering you. And there is coming a day in which He will personally complete your full deliverance. Brothers and sisters, this is the condition of God's people who are redeemed from the world, yet still living in the world. They are crying, yet heard. They are troubled, yet delivered. They are brokenhearted, yet near to God. They are contrite, yet saved. They are afflicted, yet rescued. And this parallel in the Christian life brings us to the last consideration in this text, We looked at the character of the righteous, the countenance of God, the condition of the righteous, and I want to close with the consolation of God. Having surveyed the destitute condition of the righteous, we see the prevailing promise of God's ultimate redemption and protection. Verse 20, He keepeth all his bones. Keepeth all his bones, not one of them is broken. This speaks of the final preservation by which God eternally secures his people. These 
bones here symbolically represent the totality of the believer. God will accomplish the complete, full, and final salvation of His people. On the last day, no one will be partially saved. On the last day, no one will be kind of, sort of, almost saved. On the last day, no one will be redeemed yet. I've still got this to deal with. No, God will provide for His people a perfect salvation to the uttermost. But this promise is also a prophecy. Do those of you here remember John chapter 19? The account of Jesus on the cross. And when, when men were crucified, ironically enough, to please the Jews, what the Romans would do to speed up the death process is they would break their legs, which would speed up the asphyxiation, and they would die more quickly than they would naturally on the cross. It could take up to three to four days to die naturally on the cross so they could get them off the cross by the Sabbath. You'll remember when the Romans came to break the legs of the two thieves and Jesus. They broke the legs of the thieves, but then they realized that Jesus had already died. And there was no need to break his legs. It was fulfilled then, but really I think it was fulfilled throughout his entire process of suffering. When we study the beating that he took, the agony that he underwent to think that he did all of that and underwent all of that, and yet God kept all his bones. Why is that significant? Well, the Bible says that that was done so that the scriptures might be fulfilled, not only in the life of Jesus, but in the life of his people. Believer, just as sure as this promise was literally fulfilled by Jesus on the cross, so too will it be spiritually fulfilled in your life. Again, we go back to understanding the scope and recipient of God's promises. (laughs) Jackson, do not... uh, send Edsel out on the tricycle with no padding and push him down 641 and and, uh, get mad at God when he breaks his ankle. It's not the scope of this promise. But the scope of this promise is that just as God preserved Jesus, so too will he bring about a spiritual restoration of your life and you shall be whole on the last day. Whereas God delivers, saves, restores, preserves, and protects His people, so too does He destroy the wicked. In verse 21, Evil shall slay the wicked, and they that hate the righteous shall be desolate. Take note of what it is that destroys the wicked. Evil shall slay the wicked. The trials and tribulations and afflictions from which God delivers His people will be the very things that bring about the eternal ruin of the wicked. Wickedness is its own executioner. All that God has to do for a man to go to hell is simply leave him alone. And to those of you here that are struggling with the troubles and pressures of this life... Let me say to you that those vexations of yours will eventually overcome you and cause you to be destroyed if you do not escape to the Savior. I have a message of great hope, but it is hope that is exclusively found in Jesus Christ. He really is the answer to these troubles that you are going through. The righteous are not spared because they are good people, but because they have taken refuge in a good God. And you must see your need of this same redemption. 
the troubles in your life, the hardship in your life, they are not there to tell you to try harder and work better. They are there to tell you that your efforts will never be enough and that you will one day stand before God and you will receive the reward that is justly due a sinner. Again, it's not popular preaching, but it is true. The the suffering in this life is a foretaste of an even greater suffering in the next life if we do not get out of this life through Christ. And the thing that should frighten you most is not your currently worldly trouble. It is what that current worldly trouble pictures It is the reality that you will one day stand before God, not safe in God, if you are outside of Jesus Christ. So your hardships are screaming at you that you are in desperate need of a Savior. And the Word of God, even now, is being preached unto you that there is such a Savior who stands ready and able to receive you unto Him if you would but cry. Cry and come to Jesus Christ. And friend, lest you doubt the grace of God. If you're sitting there saying, I I just don't know. I just don't know if God could really love His people the way you're saying that He loves His people. Is God really near the brokenhearted? How much does God desire to be near us? So much that He became us. That's the beauty of this text. God became the brokenhearted. God became the troubled. God became the afflicted. God became the sorrowful in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus left the blissful splendors of heaven where there was no pain and no agony and no suffering and He condescended to this world of woe. And we sing, man of sorrows, what a name for the Son of God who came. And Jesus experienced, friend, more pain, more agony, more sorrow, more hardship, more reproach, more sadness, more despite, more suffering, more tribulation, more brokenheartedness than any of us could begin to imagine. Yet it was by those gruesome sufferings that he saved all those who would ever believe upon him. By his stripes we are healed. See, Jesus did not suffer for his own sins, for he had none. He suffered in the place of, on behalf of, in the stead of his people. The world has never known such a love. The earth has never witnessed such a sacrifice. The universe has never beheld such grace. You want to overcome your pity party as you think about the sufferings you're going through just spend five minutes pondering what our Lord went through so that we could be made whole with Him the sinless Son of God submitted Himself to torments and agony and even death for sinners just like you as He shed His blood on Calvary's cross and Jesus suffered and Jesus died to put an end to the suffering and death of others. Not only has Jesus gone through much more, much worse than anything you could ever imagine, but dear Christian, He went through it for you. (laughs) And here's the blessed promise. Just as sure as Jesus was saved from His sufferings, you can rest assured that you will be saved from yours. 
You say, but he wasn't saved from his sufferings. He died on the cross. Yes, he did. But friend, what happened three days later? The Lord Jesus rose up from the grave in victory, never to die again. But the same grace that these promises are delivered to you in Psalm 34. And so God may call you to bear your cross. And God may call you to endure your suffering. But friend, after the cross always comes the resurrection. And those of you who suffer for the glory of God as Jesus did shall also be with Christ in the likeness of His resurrection. Why does God ordain these trials in your life? For the same reason He ordained the rugged cross for His only begotten Son. Because God desires you to be holy more than He desires you to be happy. And He cannot be near you unless you are made holy. And when these trials come to you and you are made to partake of affliction, rest assured that it is for the purpose of bringing about holy communion with God and making you fit to eternally dwell with Him. So as we close, who could then doubt? Verse 22, The Lord redeemeth the soul of His servants, and none of them that trust in Him shall be desolate. May these earthly affliction cause us to turn our hearts and minds upon our tender and compassionate Savior who promises and pledges to save His people both now and forevermore. Father, we thank You in Jesus' name for the promises of the Word of God that come to us. We trust in Your grace to sustain us through whatever You've called us to. Father, we confess that our sufferings are but light afflictions compared to to the reproach that our Lord endured so that we could be made right with you. I pray that you comfort your people who are here tonight, who are suffering, who are hurt, who are brokenhearted. And I pray that for that one that is here tonight that does not know Christ, I pray that you would use these words to convict him of his great need for the Savior. May you save sinners for your honor and glory. In Jesus' name, amen.